Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome to our church podcast. As you know, we want to help you get the most out of the new year, so we've come up with a way to help you engage with our content in a unique way. It's called 90, because believe it or not, there are 90 days between January 1st and Easter. So over these 90 days, we're going to journey through the life of Jesus every Sunday and then give you a chance to dive in deeper during the week through two additional connecting points designed to challenge and perhaps change you. To find out how you can get connected and sign up for the additional content, just go to 90.today. That's 90.today, 90.today. Well, the following presentation is actually part of the 90-day content, and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Here we go. Uh, When you grow up uh, in a religious home or you grow up in a religious environment like I did, um, it's easy to love your religion more than you do the people for whom the religion was given. Um, And then if you're not careful, you end up hurting people with the religion that was given for people. And then you wonder why people don't wanna get involved in your religion. And round and round and round it goes. In fact, some of you, that's the reason you gave up on religion or you gave up on church is because you ran into some church people who seemed to love their church and love their religion more than they loved you. And that was just kind of odd, wasn't it? That was just kind of odd. We're in a journey with the life of Jesus from the moment he stepped onto the pages of history as an adult until the time that he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. And the most important thing about this series in terms of tracking along with Jesus is I want you to understand and I wish the world would understand that Jesus came to introduce something new. He did not come to show up, he did not show up to continue something old. It wasn't version 2.0 of something. He didn't come to complete the book so you know we'd have a whole Bible. Jesus came to earth. God sent his son to this planet to do something brand new in the world for the world. He came to establish a brand new covenant or a brand new contract or arrangement between God and all of mankind. He came to give us a brand new command that we'll talk about in a few weeks that would be the governing ethic for his brand new movement called the church. Now, where we left off last time on this journey with Jesus, he had just revealed for the first time what his upside down agenda for his kingdom would look like. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but it's a sermon that Jesus gave many, many, many times. In fact, this was probably the core content of his message whenever people gathered to hear him teach. And in this message, he began to contrast himself with the laws of the land and the laws of that era. And he began to say things like, you have heard it said, but I say. You have been taught, but I say. You've heard since childhood, but I say. And his audience realized, wait a minute, you're contrasting yourself with Moses, the lawgiver. You're contrasting yourself with Moses, the covenant maker. It was Moses that came down from Mount Sinai with God's code for our conduct. Moses is our guide. Moses is our lawgiver. I mean, you can't stand in contrast to Moses. You can explain what Moses taught, but you can't take away from it. And Jesus felt the tension in his audience, perhaps as he felt every time. He taught this content. And so he made this statement that we looked at last week. He said, now I wanna be clear. Don't think that I've come to abolish. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. And the law or the prophets or the law and the prophets is what first century, second century Jews called their scripture, their Bible. They didn't have a Bible that had Jewish scriptures and it was referred to as the law and the prophets. It was essentially everything in your English Old Testament, from Genesis all the way through Malachi. And Jesus said, I've not come to abolish it. I've not come to abolish them, but... There is something that's about to happen. You are not imagining things. Change is coming. What you feel, the tension you feel is real. I've not come to edit them. I've not come to say that they're wrong, but I have come to fulfill them. 
if, the, if God's arrangement with Israel, ancient Israel, was an assignment, Jesus said, I've come to complete it. If his arrangement with ancient Israel was a math problem, Jesus said, I've come to solve it. If it was a plane, he said, I've come to land it. And even though it was disturbing, and even though there was so much contrast, and even, this was, even though this was so different, even though it was so new, the text says that when Jesus finished, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. But this surfaced yet another issue that launches us into our discussion today. How much authority did Jesus really have? I mean, did he really have authority? Did he really have the authority to replace everything Moses had put in place? Did he really have the authority to replace everything Solomon when he had the temple built put in place? Was he really the person they'd been waiting for all these centuries who would actually bring something brand new into the world? Soon after this, Jesus has a very interesting conversation with some other Pharisees. Here's how it began. The text tells us, Matthew tells us, that at that time, this is a few days later, um, Jesus and his guys, they're going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. They move from city to city, town to town. And on this particular day, they're walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they begin to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. Now, everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd, and everywhere Jesus went, there was a group of Pharisees or Sadducees trying to trap Jesus and separate him from the crowd. And when the Pharisees, who were walking along with Jesus, saw this, they said, look, aha, gotcha, caught We see what you're doing. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. We've got you. Somebody take a picture. Oh, we don't do that yet. Somebody do a quick sketch. We don't do that either. Okay, well, somebody document this because... Jesus and his guys, they're violating the Sabbath. And Jesus stops and says, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. And waits for the crowd to, to come closer. And says, look, you know as well as I do, we're not breaking the Sabbath. There's nothing in the, the law that says you can't break grains of head off, you know, the, the wheat when you're hungry. You know that. And he throws it right back at him. He says, besides, your priests, they work on the Sabbath. It was their version of the preacher works on Sunday. You know, sometimes I meet people, they say, I can't come to church. I work on Sunday. I always say, me too. Anyway, so, so that's the, he, he throws it right back at him. He says, look, the priests work on Sunday. So they kind of have this little spitting match, you know. And finally, Jesus rears back and gives them like a big overarching principle. He says, look, 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 you're so concerned about breaking the Sabbath. You've got it all wrong. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is a big idea. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, okay, couples don't have children, so there will be someone to play with the toys. That's not a great illustration, is it? I think it is. But anyway, I thought, his point is this. You've got it all backwards. God, God is, is not more concerned about the Sabbath than he is for people. God created the Sabbath for people. You think, this is what he was saying to them, you think God loves his law more than he loves his people, because they did. They did what many religious people do. They fell in love with their religion to the neglect of the people for whom the religion was created and to whom the religion was given. They prioritize law over people. This is the essence of legalism. This is the essence of why so many people, especially in previous generations, just walked away from the church. Legalism always prioritizes a view over a you. In fact, you may have left the church because somebody in the church you grew up in prioritized the Bible over your divorced mother or your gay brother. 
And throughout the gospels, part of the new that Jesus introduced was this, that when people, whenever people use the law of God to dishonor people made in the image of God, oh my goodness, Jesus was quick. He was quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God. So this conversation goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and finally he brings it to an end and he lands this statement that we looked at last week that's the hinge point for where we're going today. And he says, look, look, you're so concerned about the Sabbath, you're so concerned about the law, you're so concerned about the temple. Let me give you a little information. Lean in, guys, don't let this get out. I tell you, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, to compare yourself to the temple, to declare yourself greater than the temple is either arrogance, it's ignorance, or it's insanity, but it's certainly blasphemy. Nothing was greater than the temple, and certainly no individual person was greater than the temple. In fact, to say that you're greater than the temple is a threat to the temple, and a threat to the temple is actually a threat to the nation. The Jewish population in the first century um, Jerusalem, in fact, in previous centuries and in centuries to follow, they would die in order to protect that sacred piece of real estate, about 37 acres where that housed the law of God, where God dwelt, the epicenter of their worship, the epicenter of their whole world. Nothing was greater than the temple. And if you threaten the temple, you threaten the nation. Illustration of this, seven years after Jesus said this in the year 40, the citizens of Jerusalem got wind of a plot. The emperor, Emperor um, Caligula, was gonna send a statue, had actually shipped a statue of himself to the coast. And they were gonna cart this temple, uh, this, this statue of Caligula to the temple, and they were gonna place it inside the temple walls. It was as if he was picking a fight with the Jews. And Petronius, the governor of Syria at the time, was given the assignment of going to the coast with his legions and taking this statue and accompanying it south to the city of Jerusalem and placing this statue of the emperor inside the walls of the temple. And when he arrived at the port city in order to take possession of the statue, he was met with thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews. And when he threatened violence, instead of fighting back, they went to their knees and they pulled down their cloaks and they said, we are willing to die. They exposed their necks to Roman blades. Said, we will die before we allow you to desecrate our temple. Petronius eventually made his way to Tiberias. When he got to Tiberias, there were larger crowds. In fact, first century Jewish historian um, Josephus says this. He says, the Jewish people, they threw themselves down upon their faces and they stretched out their throats and said, we were ready to be slain. And they did this for 40 days. Farmers went on strike. The economy was in jeopardy. Petronius did not know what to do. It was a stalemate. This would not simply be armed conflict. This would be genocide. So he wrote a letter to the emperor asking for advice, knowing that his failure to deliver the image of the emperor to the temple would cost him not only his job, it would probably cost him his life, but he did not know what to do. And then in a twist of providence or fate, while the letter was on its way to Rome, Roman senators conspired with the Roman Praetorian Guard and they had Caligula assassinated. The crisis was averted. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. This was impossible. There was nothing greater than the temple. Besides, this was the second temple. This was Herod's temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed around 586 B.C., 
Um, later, the people were expelled from the city. Jews were thrown out of the city. The Babylonians carted off the treasure from the temple and carted off some of the best and the brightest people from the city as well. In fact, they took the Fab Four, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Some years later, some years later, the Persian emperor allowed the people to return to the city. Cyrus the Great said, you can go back to your city and you can rebuild your temple, but you can't build it as big as you built it the first time. I want a little Econo temple, okay? I want you to feel good about yourselves, but I don't want you feeling too good about yourselves. In fact, some people were there in the audience when they opened up the Econo temple who remembered Solomon's temple. And the text tells us that they wept because it was not near as grand and as glorious as the original temple then. 20 years, 20 years before Jesus is born, 20 years before Jesus is born, Herod the Great goes to the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. He says, I would like to rebuild your temple to its former glory. I would like to build you a magnificent temple. And they went back and forth and negotiated back and forth. And finally they gave him permission. So 20 years before Jesus shows up, the temple is rebuilt and it is extraordinary. Here's a model of what the temple looked like in those days. These walls in some places were over 100 feet high. This is a third, about 37 acres of, of stone that was cut stone in order to, present, to prepare the context for the temple structure itself. The temple structure itself about 60 feet high. But the thing that made this so magnificent, the thing that made it an ancient wonder of the architectural world was this, that the entire temple built on this plaza was made out of cut stone. Some of these stones were 11 by 16 by like 44 feet long. Some of the stones in this building weighed over 500 tons. This was an area where earthquakes were frequent. Herod built an earthquake proof temple for the Jews. <laughs> Something greater than the temple, Jesus? I don't think so. So one afternoon, Jesus and his guys are in the temple on the temple plaza and they're leaving and they go down probably the southern stairs and they're walking back and, and as they're leaving, one of Jesus' guys turns and he looks over his shoulder, you know, looking at the temple and, and he says, look, stop, teacher, come here, come here. Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. As many times as they'd been there, it was one of those things that you see, you see it over and over and over and every time you see it, you just, you just can't get over whatever it is you're seeing. And this was one of those things. I mean, the size of the stones, the foundation stones for the temple, every time they saw it, it's like, how in the world did they carve stone this large? How in the world did they transport it to this mount? How in the world did they get it up here? It was just overwhelming. And so they pause once more to marvel at this extraordinary, extraordinary building. Jesus stops and he looks back with them. And what comes next should make you sit up straight. And what follows, if you're not a follower of Jesus, for whatever reason, you had a bad church experience or something about six day creation or how they get all the animals on the ark. You know, I, I, understand, I understand those challenges. I just want you to lock in for just one minute because I bet you haven't heard this before. In fact, what I'm about to say is so extraordinary, I would love for you to fact check me because what happens next, what happens next, it really is epic. Jesus says, guys, you see all these great buildings? You see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Sure. Not one stone, not one stone. These fabulous stones that we wonder how they even carved them, much less transported them, much less got them to this place. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be, interesting Greek term here, 
It doesn't mean fall down. It means exactly what it says in English. Every one of these stones will be thrown down as into the valley below the base of the walls of the plaza. <laughs> and they, they just stare like, like, okay, so is there a punchline? I mean, what? I mean, in other words, Jesus was saying, look, don't be too impressed. It's a teardown. Now the problem was this, come on, we're with me. This is impossible. You couldn't tear down Herod's temple. It's impossible. An earthquake may topple a parapet. An earthquake may crack a foundation here and there. You may lose a few bricks off a building. You may have to repair a floor. But even an earthquake couldn't throw all the stones of the temple off the plaza into the valley below. There was only one force in the world powerful enough to do that. And that would be the Roman army. And the Roman army is not about to destroy Herod's temple. Herod is a vassal king who works for Rome and Herod's the one that built the temple to keep the Jews quiet and to keep them peaceful. I mean, Jesus, I mean, you know, maybe we misunderstood, but this, this, isn't, this isn't just disturbing. This is, this is impossible. In fact, if this happened, this would be apocalyptic. This would be the end. I mean, the end of the temple is the end of the world as we know it. And we will not feel fine. So they make their way down into the valley and they make their way up to the Mount of Olives and his guys are so disturbed by this. It's like, you oh, we remember you saying you're greater than the temple. Okay, that was weird. I mean, you're greater than the temple. And now you're telling us that this building is going to somehow come tumbling down all the way into the valley below. So later, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, they took a break opposite the temple with this panoramic view of the city and the temple. You can visit the site. Peter, James, John, and Andrew went to him privately. They just had to know. They just couldn't let that hang there. This was much too big of a deal. And they said to him, tell us, when will these things happen? And so he did. In fact, I would love for you today, tomorrow, sometime soon, find yourself a Bible, download one on, from, from the internet, you know, the YouTube, I mean, uh, YouVersion Bible, it's extraordinary online Bible. Dust off your grandmama's Bible, find yourself a Bible and go to Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 21 and read what Jesus says about the days when this would happen. He said, when this takes place, you will see an army surrounding the city. And when you see the army surrounding the city, you'll know that the destruction of this city is about to happen. You should leave the city. You should take everything with the city. Woe unto the pregnant woman. Pray that your wife is not pregnant in these days. Pray that there are no nursing mothers in these days. Men will die by the sword. They will pray for mercy. They will pray to die. It will be so extraordinary when what I predicted takes place. He wasn't apologetic. He didn't say, oh, I was speaking figuratively. He wasn't really nostalgic. But when you read how he described what would happen, clearly he was heartbroken and he was disturbed, but he was not exaggerating. But if that were to happen, the world as they knew it would literally come to an end. And 40 years later, that's exactly what happened. After four years of battling with basically gangs, Jewish gangs that had created an uprising against Rome. They had one giant victory over a Roman legion 
And they thought, oh, we can expel Rome. And their one victory gave them the momentum they needed to begin raising armies all over Galilee and Judea. The citizenry was scared to death. They knew this probably would not end well. But the young, the young men felt like this is our time. We can rise up and we can conquer Rome. And Rome sent in the 10th Legion and others. And they began to herd the Jewish rebels from Galilee all the way down south. And eventually they rounded them all up in the city of Jerusalem. And they built a wall, a stone wall, all the way around the city. By this time, Vespasian, who started this war, had gone on to be emperor, left his son Titus. And early, as they began to build siege works around the city, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people, pilgrims, because it was a festival time, began to make their way toward the city. And initially, the Roman army said, no, you can't enter the city. And Vespasian said, no, open the gates, allow them to enter, accompany them to the city. And once they're all in, seal it because their food supply, their food supply will be depleted faster. And what happened inside the city was horrible. They fought with the Romans by day, they fought with each other by night. The grain stores caught on fire during one of the internal skirmishes. They were so sure that they were gonna expel the Romans, they, already be, they began fighting each other for who would be king of Israel. And on August the 6th, AD 70, the second wall was breached. The 10th Legion went into the city and killed just about everything they could that couldn't be sold into slavery. They burned everything that would burn in the temple. And then they literally, fact check me, they literally dragged every single stone used to build the temple off the ledge of the plaza and dumped it into the valley below to say, this is the end of Judaism. In fact, today, you can go to the southwestern corner of the temple and see some of those stones for yourself. It was never rebuilt. On that day, ancient Judaism died, never to be resurrected, just as Jesus predicted. This is what it looks like today. You've seen pictures like this. Dome of the Rock, around 700 AD, 8700, um, the, um, Muslims came and built the Dome of the Rock. It was a place where people could, Jewish people and um, Muslim people could take a pilgrimage to see where Abraham sacrificed either Ishmael or Isaac, depending on which religion you embraced. They built a mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, around 700, uh, it wasn't this size then. Earthquake destroyed it, they rebuilt it. Another earthquake destroyed it. Then they built it to this size. 1099, the Crusades retook the city. They turned the mosque into a church. 88 years later, Saladin came retook the city for the Muslims and turned it back into a mosque. Rabbinic Judaism was born, but ancient Sinai Judaism was never resurrected, just as Jesus predicted. Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, I'm gonna depart from the storyline for just a minute because what I wanna explain next is a little bit complicated, but it is oh so important. The group of men who followed Jesus' apostles after the Peter was mur martyred, Paul was martyred, Andrew was martyred, they say Matthew was martyred. When all of Jesus' first century original followers died, the next group of people that stepped into leadership in the church are called the church fathers. 
And the church fathers were quick to do exactly what I'm doing today. The church fathers were quick to say, aha, it happened just as Jesus predicted. Jesus is who Jesus claims he is. How in the world could someone predict something so you know, epic, so cataclysmic, so, so easy to verify? Jesus must be who Jesus, they did exactly what I'm saying. They're saying Jesus said it and it happened. Jesus predicted it and it happened. But the gospel writers, the writer of Matthew, the writer of Mark, the writer of Luke, the writer of John, don't do that. And the question we have to wrestle to the ground, especially if you're a skeptic, is this, how could they resist? How could they resist editorializing on such an extraordinary, extraordinary phenomenon? How could they resist you know, adding to their text something like this? And so it came about, just as Jesus said it would. Because if you read the gospels carefully, they do this all the time. Throughout the gospels, they'll say, Jesus said, but the disciples didn't understand it at the time. They remembered it later. Later, they understood. They constantly editorialized because they were looking back on the life of Jesus, writing about what he said, what he did. And then they would interpret what he said and what he did because they were on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So why in the world would Matthew and why wouldn't Mark and why wouldn't Luke and why wouldn't John, how could they resist saying, and oh my goodness, it happened just as he said it would, especially when you read the detail he gives in Luke chapter 21 and in Matthew and in Mark. So why not leverage this? Why not see, say, see there, I told you so. And here's the answer. And this should make you sit up straighter. This should make you fall on your face and declare Jesus as your Lord. Because when the gospel of Mark was written, the temple was still standing. That's why Mark didn't say it. When the, when the gospel of Matthew was written, the temple was still saying, that's why Matthew didn't say, and sure enough, it happened. When Matthew was written, he, he included Jesus' prediction, but he didn't include the fulfillment of the prediction because it hadn't happened yet. When the gospel of Luke was written, Luke who said, I have thoroughly investigated all these things so that you would have an orderly account of what the life of Jesus looked like, what he taught and what he did. When the gospel of Luke was written, the temple was still standing. And my friends, here's the problem. When you were in school, or if you were to go back to school, or when you began to read information to the contrary, the reason you were told, and the reason I was told in school, that the gospels were written by not eyewitnesses, but people who wrote many generations afterwards, is this very prediction. Because if Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem with the detail that he gives us, and it was not written in after the fact, my friends, it is indisputable evidence that Jesus is worth following. Matthew didn't include it because it hadn't happened yet. Mark didn't include it because it hadn't happened yet. Luke didn't include it because it happened, didn't happen yet. But my friends, it happened just as Jesus said it would. It is the most verifiable prophecy ever given anywhere by anybody. Not one stone, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And it looks as if the only reason Jesus stopped to share this with his guys was because they marveled at the temple, because they asked him. And when you read it, Jesus isn't happy about it. Jesus isn't gleeful. Jesus isn't vindictive. Jesus isn't, see there, when this happens, everybody's gonna know I'm who I claim to be. There's none of that. His heart was broken because these were his people and they would suffer in a way that is unimaginable to our modern senses. But Jesus was clear. The days 
of temple sacrifice, the days of animal sacrifice, the days of God's covenant with the nation of Israel is coming to an end. And it will be replaced by something new, by something improved, by something universal, and by something portable. 20 years later, 20 years later, while the temple is still standing, 20 years after Jesus gave this prediction, the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul, the ex-temple loving, Christian persecuting Pharisee, writes to ex-pagans in Corinth who had their own temple experience. And he writes them these astounding words that again, we miss because we've never been temple people. But here's what he said. He said, do you know or do you not know because they didn't know. Do you not know that your bodies, this was a game changer, that your bodies, your physical bodies are temples. Something's changed. Something new has come. That your physical bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, the very spirit that inhabited the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. That building that he could have said that is still standing is no longer inhabited by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has left the building and inhabits the hearts of men and inhabits the hearts of women. You've been inhabited by the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. The significance is lost on us, but it is loaded with implications for first century pagans and first century Jewish people. And here are the implications that sacred, with the arrival of Jesus, sacred has been commuted. There are no more sacred objects there is no more sacred geography. There are no more sacred sites. There are only sacred individuals, sacred people. The message of the gospel, the message of, the, of Jesus, the new that he came to introduce, not for a group of people, but for the world is this, that you are seated beside sacred, that you are raising sacred, you married sacred, you hire and you work for sacred. The stage was set with Jesus. The stage was set for the upending of all society. The seeds were sown for the end of slavery. The seeds were sown for dignity for all mankind, but more importantly, for all womankind as well. Because there is an inextricable link. There's an inextricable link between the message of Jesus and human freedom. Because there is a link between the message of Jesus, between human dignity and the cross, the price he paid to declare the worth of every single person who has ever walked the planet. There's an inextricable link between the teachings of Jesus and your value, your worth, your intrinsic, not assigned, your intrinsic dignity. I tell you, he said, something greater than the temple is here. And it was. Something greater than the temple had come to the world for the world. And then as he predicted, the temple came down. Along with eventually temples all over the Roman Empire. For the light and the love of God had been released and manifest to the world. For the world. And here's where this intersects with you, and here's where this intersects with you, and here's where this intersects with me. 
that Jesus' original invitation still stands. And as it stood before the temple came down, how much more powerful now that the temple has come down? Before the resurrection, this, extent, this invitation was extended. How much more significant is it that it's extended to us today after the resurrection? And the invitation is simply this. It's follow me. It's follow me. Follow me and you will find life that is truly life. Follow me and you will find abundant life. Follow me and you will find meaning in life. Follow me and you will find fearless life. Follow me and you will find life placed within the bookends of eternity. And you'll never be the same and you'll never see the same again. And follow me not because of faith. Follow me because I have demonstrated myself faithful. And follow me because I have given you more than enough evidence to know that I am he who your heavenly father sent to pay for your sins and to establish a relationship with your heavenly father. Follow me. Why wouldn't you do that? Why would you resist that? Why would you fear that? Well, once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content on this message and all the messages that we're doing between now and Easter, I wanna invite you again to go to 90.today. That's 90.today and sign up. At 90.today, you'll find a host of different ways to engage deeper with our church and the extraordinary life of Jesus. We'll see you next time.